such enthusiasm. Good morning, everyone. I love the enthusiasm. And we had a slight technical thing, and now we're ready to roll. Uh, welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Before we get started this morning and we do our introductions, I wanted to introduce Karen Hike from the section of Occupational Medicine, who is going to talk to us about a new program we're inaugurating through the department's new program in culinary medicine. So I want you to learn about this and to spread the word, and Karen is going to tell us what she has in mind for us. Thank you. Don't spread the word too much because we want to feed you all, not the whole <laughs> institution. So um, thank you. Uh, Auden McClure, who's the head of the Lipin Clinic for the Pediatrics Department, would also be here. She's on vacation. But uh, uh, the two of us, with uh, the support of Dr. Ross and Dr. Rothstein, are introducing a new component to Medical Grand Rounds, Cookie Learn. Uh, skills to promote healthy lifestyle partnerships with our patients. I'm going to spend just a minute explaining why and what it is. Um, we all know that uh, chronic diseases, chronic lifestyle diseases, are one of the leading causes of morbidity and mortality in our population. Uh, CDC, CDC and U.S. Census data tells us there's over a million obese and overweight adults and children just in New Hampshire and Vermont. Um, most of these are preventable. We know that uh, we play a role in this prevention. Unfortunately, study after study is showing us that we don't really know how to do it. Um, there's a lot of reasons for the, for the uh, for that. Um, some of it is lack of knowledge and education. Some of it is, is provider um, uh, attitudes towards obesity and other lifestyle diseases. We know that 14% of interns surveyed nationwide in academic medical centers felt comfortable providing lifestyle counseling. Um, as you get farther out from training, you're even less comfortable with it. Um, currently, at DH, like most uh, academic medical centers, we don't really have a way to respond to this. Um, but we do know that clinicians who practice healthful behaviors are more likely to counsel their patients about healthful behaviors. So to try to address this, we are introducing Cookie Learn, the objective of which is to empower clinicians and staff to model and promote health, healthful lifestyle behaviors that are needed to treat and prevent uh, chronic diseases. And we're going to do that by teaching essential nutrition and culinary skills and also trying to make it fun. Um, this will be a year-long uh, culinary and nutrition curriculum, and it's for everyone who comes to Department of Medicine Grand Rounds, so please don't tell your colleagues in other departments that we're going to feed them. Um, it's going to start at 7.30 every Friday before Grand Rounds, and it's going to include a healthful and delicious breakfast, a cooking demonstration with hands-on cooking stations, some recipes, um, pun intended, easily digestible summaries of the nutrition literature, some lifestyle medicine resources for providers, um, if so for us, and also some resources for our patients that should be um, easy to use and easy to integrate, and a weekly trivia question with prizes. Um, this is just a sample of the next few. We've um, tried to correlate it with some of the lectures. So for cardiology, we're going to have heart, uh, um, talking about heart-healthy diets. For nephrology conference, we're going to talk about salt and seasonings. But the beginning will be the building blocks, um, building a healthy plate, healthy proteins, healthy vegetables, fruits, et cetera. Um, we'll have some special topics over the holidays, chocolate, um, eating out on special occasions. And at the end, we'll have a Department of Medicine potluck. That'll be during the gastroenterology grand round. <laughs> Um, you can get up to 0.25 CME thanks to our CME team um, who uh, worked hard on getting uh, things to fit onto the CME form. And um, there will be an option to participate in a pre and post test. We really hope you'll do it because we think actually this might be um, something that could be publishable. This is pretty uh, new. There's not many people doing it. So the first session will be two Fridays from now, um, just right outside here in the, the vestibule. Uh, and the topic will be building a healthy plate. So thanks to our culinary medicine team with advice from a whole lot of other people, um, a lot of support from John Butterly and um, Bob McClellan and Dr. Ross and Dr. Rossi. Um, so we're all over the, the institution, and we are excited and hope that you'll come. Thank you. That's great. It's an exciting program. Uh, it will also educate us all and give us some treats on Friday mornings. Um, without further ado, I'm going to ask Bob McClellan to come up and introduce today's speaker, who has no stated conflicts of interest. Um, 
John Christopher here from Dartmouth College. Um, Bob McClellan, as you know, is the section chief in occupational medicine. He's also the medical director of the uh, of our wellness program for all of our uh, our employees and their families. Somewhere around 16,000 individuals that he's uh, responsible for the the health of their lives and. Um, uh, he's also an associate professor in community and family medicine, medicine, and the Dartmouth Institute. So please tell us about today's speaker. So I am delighted on behalf of uh, Live Well, Work Well and uh, the section of Occupational Environmental Medicine to invite John Christopher um, to speak to us today. John is a psychologist, newly arrived from uh, Montana, uh, Montana State University, where he has been working for the past uh, 18 years as a professor and was also an affiliate professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine. He's now at Hanover Psychiatry and a full professor in our Department of Psychiatry. Um, he's a fellow of the American Psychological Association and former president of the Society of Theoretical and Ph Philosophical Psychology. Um, and uh, he's received numerous awards, including a Fulbright uh, Philosophical in Fulbright, a Fulbright Scholar Award, and also the Sigmund Koch Early Career Award by the American Psychological Association. He also um, has a fellowship in the Mind and Life Institute. Um, while John's work focuses on health psychology and behavioral medicine, his background and interests are truly interdisciplinary. He works at the border of the social and medical sciences and the humanities to advance theory, research, and practice uh, on well-being. Um, I could tell you a lot more about him, but being mindful of the time, I will tell you he's published a lot. Um, and he's also walked the walk. Um, and he's a practitioner of uh, all that he has to say over the past 30 years. John, welcome. Thank you. It's a uh, it's a real honor to be here. Uh, that's not mine. Maybe an opportunity for all of all of us to take a few deep breaths, <laughs> especially me. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Why would mindfulness make the cover of Time magazine? And why are centers for teaching mindfulness now at over 20 medical schools and hospitals, including Harvard, Duke, Stanford, Brown, and Yale? In my presentation today, I'd like to, um, well, let's see. Interesting. Uh, I think I know the solution to that. One moment, please. As if presentations aren't stressful enough, you know? Um, arrangement, right? Should be mirror displays. Has our tech support person abandoned us? <laughs> Okay, interesting. Um, so in my presentation today, I'd like to try to answer these questions and give you a taste of mindfulness and help you to see why mindfulness might be of benefit to you, your staff, and your patients. But first, I'd like to show, see a show of hands. How many people attended one of the presentations of John Kabat-Zinn when he was here at Dartmouth in 2011? So quite a number of you. Okay, so some of this may be old hat to you all. So mindfulness has been de uh, defined as awareness of the present moment with acceptance. So we can be aware of all sorts of different things, but this is awareness of what our present moment experience is. Hi. You might want to stay close. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so, um, 
And the acceptance part is also especially important. As the founder of acceptance and commitment therapy, a mindfulness form of therapy, Stephen Hayes put it, acceptance is uh, the active, non-judgmental embracing of experience in the here and now. So oddly enough, this combination of being aware and being acceptance, accepting seems to be transforming at least certain parts of healthcare. A brief way of describing sort of an introduction or instructions for mindfulness is this statement at the bottom. Notice whatever predominance in awareness moment to moment. So a very brief history of mindfulness. While William James's prediction was off by 80 years, uh, he was otherwise right on target. And you can see that now there are over 2,000 peer or 5,000 peer-reviewed articles in PsychInfo, over 2,000 in PubMed, and 434 trials documented at the NIH on mindfulness-type interventions. While mindfulness has been inspired by Buddhism, though, it's important to point out that psychology is drawing on Buddhism not as a religion, but to me as what its original intent was as an indigenous psychology designed to provide a very detailed and nuanced understanding of the mind and a remedy for at least some of human suffering. Um, and moreover, mindfulness states or means of um, accessing them are really found through virtually all cultures and all periods. So I hope that the Buddhist uh, backdrop of mindfulness doesn't scare anyone off. Okay, so let's just try a little experiment for a few minutes. I'm sure this might be helpful on a Friday at the end of a long week, getting ready for a three-day weekend. So if you take a moment, settle back into your chair, or the floor if you're sitting on the floor. Take a moment and begin to notice the points of contact between you and the floor and the chair. Allow your mind to become truly curious about this experience of sitting, how it shows up in your body. Begin to notice what's happening, particularly in your torso but noticing bodily sensations, making room for whatever's there, trying to notice without judgment or analysis, watching the sensations, almost as if you're watching a rather odd or surrealistic movie by Bergman or Fellini. giving whatever is there in your body the room and space to move around internally, to get bigger or smaller. Just watching, perhaps noticing how quickly your mind engages in commentary or dialogue, creates stories about what's there, realizing that that's normal. That's what minds tend to do. And coming back to the physical sensation again. And if your mind's particularly agitated, perhaps letting your breath be a little bit slower and a little bit deeper. Just receiving whatever's present. We know now that these sensations in the body are also primary emotions, our most basic form of emotional experience, much more primary than the kind of experience that we sort of label and can say, this is sadness or this is anger. So as we make room for whatever is there in our somatic experience, at the same time, we're learning how to be with our emotional experience and regulate it.
and maybe stepping back now a foot from your experience and sensing overall any shifts or changes from just spending a couple of minutes being with our internal experience. Perhaps any shifts that happened physically just from being aware or any shifts on an emotional level or maybe shifts in the activity level or quality of our minds. And then beginning to open your eyes if your eyes have been closed. And coming back slowly to the room. <coughs> so just a very brief taste of mindfulness. And if we have time, we'll, we'll add another one in towards the end. There are a number of different ways that mindfulness is being incorporated into behavioral medicine and psychotherapy now. Um, these are a few of the ways. I'm going to focus primarily on mindfulness-based stress reduction, which was developed in the late 1970s by John Kabat-Zinn, an MI-trained molecular biologist who began his work at the University of Massachusetts in Worcester. MBSR is an, secular, an accessible secular approach to meditation. And um, it's based on a group format of weekly two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour sessions and a day-long Saturday, typically, or Sunday intensive. Um, it involves homework every day. So participants are expected to do 30 to 45 minutes of practice. And the practices of various different types of mindfulness techniques, of course, meditation practices, as well as very gentle forms of yoga, a body scan practice, and I've introduced Qigong, a practice from uh, ancient Chinese medicine, because I found it to be the most accessible form and least intimidating, and also, hopefully, uh, the, the quickest to practice. So one of the benefits to me of mindfulness-based stress reduction, in contrast to some of the other approaches that have been existing um, or, or emerged at the same time, like Herbert Benson's relaxation response, is that mindfulness-based stress reduction um, gives patients a variety of different approaches to an experience of training their mind in this process called uh, mindfulness. And that's helpful because research shows that uh, different patients are drawn to different practices. So it increases the odds that um, everyone will find something that works for them. And um, this helps to account for the high completion rate. A 1988 study found 77% of participants completed MBSR courses. Also high compliance rates of 91% at three months um, and uh, after the course was over. And at the same time, 84% said they practiced three or more times per week. One of the ways that mindfulness-based stress reduction is different from taking a yoga class or a meditation class in the community is that you're working with a professional trained to help you see the interface between these practices and the areas where we're all suffering from stress, either on a physical level or on a psychological level. And that's really the artistry of teaching mindfulness, is to help each individual figure out how the practice can directly affect the areas where they struggle. MBSR distinguishes between two general types of practice. Formal practice, which is setting aside a certain amount of time and sitting on a meditation cushion or a chair or on a yoga mat and engaging in practice, ideally on a daily basis. And informal practice, where we begin to apply the principles of acceptance and awareness to more and more little moments in our life, realizing becoming present to those moments, like when we're walking across the parking lot and really noticing what our experience is and what's actually happening around us, rather than living in the past or, um, or anticipating the future, which is what, when we slow down and notice what our mind is doing, we're typically doing probably 95% of the time. Um, and uh, with mindfulness, um, one of the principles that sort of underlies the approach is that uh, pain is inevitable. Um, and, uh, but that suffering is optional. And this is because suffering is seen as a result of resisting pain. 
uh, trying to control and manage our experience um, and distance ourselves. So for example, if I have pain in my neck and head, uh, which unfortunately is someone who struggles with chronic pain, I often do, and I try to push the pain away re or resist it, I'm actually creating um, more tension, both in my body and also psychologically. It's almost as if we get engage in magical thinking, that we can uh, decrease the pain by contracting around it and somehow making it smaller. But as we learn to slow down and become more intimate with our internal experience through meditative training, we can discover that the additional resistance is not worth the cost. It's a bit like noticing how driving with white knuckles on black ice doesn't make us a better driver. Instead, if I can begin to accept the pain, letting it be present, it becomes less fatiguing, less of a burden, more tolerable. On an emotional level, so that was more from the physical example, on an emotional level, we can all learn to dis we all learn to disavow or disconnect from certain emotional experiences beginning in childhood. At an implicit or unconscious level, we learn to avoid certain types of emotions like anger or sadness because they seem too painful or overwhelming. <coughs> in my private practice, I use heart math, a form of biofeedback in use involving heart rate variability. And I found that when people are avoiding or resisting their feelings, their heart rate variability is in an incoherent state. But when they can courageously open up and face difficult emotions, their heart rate variability becomes coherent. And so I'm able to often say, while I know this is very painful to you at the moment to experience, your heart loves what you're doing right now. So I wanted to just briefly mention a few of the earliest studies on mindfulness. And this is uh, part of the why we're talking about mindfulness, is that John Kabat-Zinn had the insight to begin doing empirical research at the very beginning in the 1970s. Uh, so this is the very first study. Um, and um, with 90 chronic pain patients, um, they found significant reductions in present moment pain, how problematic patients viewed body parts, negative body image, inhibition of activity by pain, number of symptoms reported in the previous month, and psychological symptoms um, of depression and anxiety in particular. Um, in another earlier uh, early study um, that looked at the impact on um, anxiety and depression, um, you can see that in the first slide um, that the uh, shows a drop of scores on the Beck anxiety inventory. And the second slide shows the drop off of depression scores. Um, the study also found maintenance of these changes for an additional 12 weeks <coughs> post-treatment, as seen by the long tail on both graphs. And in an interesting 1988 art or 1998 article in the Journal of Psychosomatic Medicine, Kabat-Zinn and colleagues found that mindfulness meditation reduced rates of skin clearing in psoriasis patients and um, with moderate to severe psoriasis. In this study, though, on, and instead of being in a group format, they listened to mindfulness uh, tapes, audio tapes, while receiving light therapy. And, um, and these patients reached the halfway point and the clearing point in their lesions significantly more rapidly than those in the no-tape condition for both, for both UVB and PUVA treatments. Now, one of the most compelling and groundbreaking studies comes from the lab of Richie Davidson at Madison, um, who's, who was the founder of a field now called contemplative neuroscience. In this randomized control trial, brain electrical activity was assessed before and immediately after, and then four weeks later, an eight-week MBSR program. At the end of the eight-week period, subjects in both groups were vaccinated with an influenza vaccine. Increases were found in the left-sided uh, anterior activation, and this is a pattern that's previously been associated with positive affect. And in, uh, in the meditators compared with the non-meditators, um, so this is the first study to document significant changes in anterior activation asymmetry as a function of meditation training. 
Significant increases were also found in antibody titers to the influenza vaccine among subjects in the meditation compared with those in the waitlist control group. In addition, the magnitude of increase in left-sided activation predicted the magnitude of antibody titer rise to the vaccine. So this study is also the first demonstration of a reliable effect of meditation on an in vivo measure of immune function. RCTs have been uh, found to have support mindfulness for a variety of conditions. Um, I won't read those off, but I'll give you just a moment to scan them. And um, there are over 100 RCTs now involving with mindfulness. There's also been a number of meta-analyses. Uh, these are three that exist out there. And um, for the sake of time, I'll skip through that. But in general, uh, MBC uh, mindfulness-based therapies have found to be an effective treatment for a variety of psychological problems, uh, and especially for reducing anxiety, depression, and stress related to physical illnesses. Um, with the epidemic of opioid abuse, uh, this study by Garland and colleagues should be of relevance to all of us. They found that an eight-week MBSR recovery program led to a 63% reduction in opioid misuse versus 32% for a conventional support group and a 22% reduction in pain-related impairment. So I wanted to kind of go through a few mechanisms of action. Stress is implicated in many of the diseases and illnesses that we struggle with, both as patients and as practitioners. Stress causes an imbalance in the autonomic nervous system, parasympathetic underactivity, and sympathetic overactivity, as well as underactivity of inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA. As Stranford stress physiologist and MacArthur Award winner Robert Sapolsky views it, Stress-related diseases occur because we turn on a system designed to be on for 30 seconds and leave it on for 30 years. The SNS, sympathetic nervous system, is a system designed to acute, deal with acute stress, like escaping from a tiger. As you know, the sympathetic nervous system deactivates a number of systems of the body, such as the immune system, the growth system, the reproductive system, and the digestive system. But because of the pace of modern life, trauma, and our prefrontal cortex, which can turn things like exams, deadlines, and even traffic jams into tigers, uh, too many stressful systems of the body, for too many of us, remain deactivated for too long, leading to stress-related illnesses. Mindfulness is a partial solution in that it helps to restore equilibrium in the autonomic nervous system by bringing the parasympathetic nervous system back online, and with it, those systems of the body that are critical, but deprioritized in times of perceived crisis. On the other side of the spectrum, mindfulness can help regulate the ANS and contribute to healing with diseases and syndromes related to too much parasympathetic nervous system activation. And the consequences of stress cannot be overstated. For instance, a 2008 meta-study shows how serious the impact of stress can be with cancer. In this analysis by Cheetah and Associates, psychosocial stress was associated with cancer um, incidence in initially healthy populations in 165 studies, associated with decreased survival in 330 studies, and associated with higher mortality in 53 studies. While we're still discovering the mechanisms of action, we do know that stress compromises the immune system. Oh, was I, was that slide off? Sorry. Here, I'll let you just scan that for a minute. Have all the slides been off? Okay. <laughs> Another deep breath. <laughs> Mindfulness, another mechanism of action, is that mindfulness changes the brain, and it's really become that simple. Um, three hours of mental training has been found to increase anterior cingulate cortex activity and improve self-regulation. 11 hours of training has now been found to increase fractional anisotropy, 
FA, an index indicating the integrity and efficiency of white matter in the corona radiata, an important white matter tract connecting the ACC to other structures. After, three after eight weeks of an MBSR training, um, uh, Sarah Lazar and her colleagues have found increases in gray matter in the hippocampus, which is connected to memory, learning, and emotion regulation, in the posterior cingulate, which is related to self-processing, in the temporal parietal junction, which is related to empathy, and to the insula, which is involved in interoceptive awareness, so awareness of internal states, particularly somatic states, and empathy. And also, decreases in gray matter in the amygdala, which is involved um, in flight or fight and in, um, is often overactive for people who've experienced trauma, trauma, either relational or later in their life. And finally, one other study I wanted to mention, and, um, another study out of Sarah Lazar's lab at Harvard found, um, looked at the impact of long-term meditators and found that brain regions associated with attention, interoception, and sensory processing were thicker in meditation participants than matched controls. And, um, uh, and particularly the thicker areas were in the prefrontal cortex and the right interior um, uh, insula. Between group differences in prefrontal cortex thickness were most pronounced in older participants, suggesting that meditation might offset age-related cortical thinning. These data provide the first structural evidence for ex, um, experience-dependent cortical plasticity associated with meditation practice. Another mechanism of action may be related to gene expression. A day of intensive practice of mindfulness meditation in experienced subjects um, on the expression of circadian chromatin, modulatory, and inflammatory genes in peripheral blood mononuclear cells um, found uh, a downregulation of genes that have been implicated in inflammation. The affected genes included the pro-inflammatory genes RIPK2 and CLX2, as well as several histone deacetylase genes. I hope I didn't mispronounce too much of that. <laughs> Other um, mechanisms of action uh, that have been suggested in the literature include things, and these are more described in um, more kind of phenomenological terms, things like attention regulation, the ability for bringing stability of awareness in spite of competing input or clear seeing, developing clear seeing, body awareness, ability to notice subtle sensations and to become conscious of one's emotions, um, which is thought to be the precondition for empathy. Emotional regulation, um, by this they mean decreased reactivity, not letting emotional reactions interfere with performance. A process called reappraisal, which is seeing difficulties as meaningful or benign, rather than all bad, um, the common expression now, it is what it is. Exposure. Here, global de meaning global desensitization to, quote, whatever is present in the field of awareness, um, particularly emotions, by learning to stay with them. A flexible sense of self by becoming, learning to disidentify with emotions and becoming more adaptive and learning to recognize the complexity and uh, ambiguity that exists within all of us when we begin to pay attention to our inner experience. Self-compassion. Emotional resilience through self-kindness when things go wrong, in particular. Uh, Reperceiving, disidentification with thoughts and feelings. So we often identify with our thoughts. We often think that that's the core of who we are. And uh, in mindfulness, one begins to step back a little bit, like we did in this experiential activity, and just notice thoughts passing by, and identify more with the awareness that's behind the thoughts or behind the feelings rather than with the thoughts and the feelings themselves. Values clarification also occurs, um, particularly in acceptance and commitment therapy, which involves um, re-identifying one's sense of purpose and not sweating the small stuff. 
And notice that the, this process of values clarification doesn't come sort of from the, from the intellect, um, but rather often comes from a more embodied experience of really deeply sensing what one's values actually are, or really noticing the values one's actually living out in one's life. Um, also flexibility on the cognitive, emotional, and behavioral levels, leading to more adaptiveness and um, and finally, emotional differentiation, awareness of emotional, uh, of emotional experiences as experiences and not necessarily as the truth or reality of our situation. So in conclusion, mindfulness and MBSR seem to help patients become active participants in their own healing in a variety of ways. In this way, MBSR promotes what has been called participatory medicine the essence of which is captured by John Kabat-Zinn when he writes, as caregivers, we have to remind ourselves of what we, of course, already know, namely that all human beings, including ourselves and our patients, have deep and lifelong resources for learning, growing, healing, and personal transformation. And mindfulness may be one way of helping to access that. So now, what about providers? So um, as you probably know, Maslach in 1982 defined burnout as a syndrome of emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and reduced personal accomplishment that occurs among individuals who do people work. A considerable amount of research indicates that health workers are particularly vulnerable to stress overload as well. Since being here in January, a number of people have told me that the rates of burnout are really high at DHMC. And uh, I'm curious what your experience is. Um, could I get a show of hands? How many of you would um, say you've experienced burnout while you've been here? Yeah, so a lot. OK. Um, so the effects, though, unfortunately, of burnout are extensive and have been researched. Um, and it's been found to contribute to poor quality health care, medical errors, low productivity and efficiency, contributes to turnover, which of course is quite expensive for the institution. Um, so it's been found that mindfulness can facilitate a number of the qualities that, that um, lead to good doctoring. It facilitates multitasking. Um, it's been shown to enhance attention, improve memory, um, enhance empathy and accurate recognition of patients' emotional states. And this is particularly important because researchers from Toronto and Duke um, have concluded that um, some studies show that doctors fail up to 90% of the time to respond to emotional cues from patients. Um, it can improve data gathering and diagnosis and also promotes creativity. All of this can help lead to what Ronald Epstein at Rochester has termed mindful practice. As he sees it, the goals of mindful medical practice are to become more aware of one's own mental processes, listen more attentively, become flexible, and recognize bias and judgments, and thereby act with principles and compassion. Not that we don't do that anyway, but mindfulness helps us actually be more of the people that we want to be by reducing the, the levels of reactivity in our lives that we all inevitably have. Um, so mindfulness has also has the potential to be a potent means not only for increasing our productivity and efficiency um, and our care abilities, but also um, as a means of promoting self-care and resilience for doctors and other healthcare professionals. A handful of studies have been conducted including several randomized control trials. And these have found that um, uh, improvements in burnout, mood states, empathy, and self-compassion, quality of life, and mindfulness increase from participation in mindfulness interventions and decreases in perceived stress, total mood disorder, and psychological symptoms. For the past 16 years, I've been using mindfulness practices in the training of healthcare professionals, primarily counselors and psychologists, as a way of giving them tools for self-care. And with a group of colleagues, we've conducted a number of qualitative studies. I chose qualitative research because at the time, no research had been done on this topic. 
And I was interested in trying to explore the range of experiences in as open-ended a way as possible. So I'd leave, like to briefly share some data that exemplify their experiences. The class I developed, Mind Body Medicine and the Art of Self-Care, was a 15-week course that met five hours a week. Half of the time was spent on the floor doing practices. We found that students reported changes in a number of domains, and in the anxiety about getting all the technical stuff, I left my quotes in here, so let me grab those. So let me give you a few examples of the kinds of things that people reported. On the physical level, one student wrote, I also think my body is changing. I notice more balance, more leg strength, overall flexibility, and a slight weight loss. I have more aerobic capacity, which I particularly notice when biking or hiking. My ability to balance on my left leg, which had the nerve damage, is continuing to improve a bit at a time. And another student wrote, as far as physical ailments, I feel as if I know my body a lot better, and I'm able to recognize when I'm starting to feel ill, and then I slow down and take care of myself. On the emotional level, here's a few examples. This course has given me the time, space, and urging to increase awareness, slow down, and be more present, and to continue to let go of fears, anxiety, self-criticism, and doubt allowing me to just be in the moment, feel, accept, and trust. On the mental or attitudinal level of change, one student wrote, through exploring the required readings and the class, I've become more aware of what it means to be whole, and I've begun to see the importance of integrating the aspects of myself that I had previously abandoned. Although the process of reintegration is a long and arduous process, I've begun to explore this abandonment and what it would mean to reintegrate aspects I considered to be difficult and painful, and through this, beginning to accept my flawed self. They also reported a number of changes interpersonally in terms of their personal relationships. One student wrote, I'm learning to take responsibility for my own feelings and at the same time not to take things personally. Disagreements with my partner no longer appear so threatening. I'm able to express my feelings more straightforwardly to him, re and, um, to him recently because I believe that my thoughts and feelings matter. Also, if he does not like what I say to him, I know that it does not mean he rejects who I am. Finally, I believe that I can work on my own issues and improve my relationship with myself as well as with my partner. <laughs> this class truly changed my life, and, and every relationship I have seems to be improving dramatically. My parents, clients, peers, partner, co-worker, and friends. <coughs> Students also reported a number of changes in their clinical work, and so these are counselors and psychotherapists, but I think some of the um, findings may be relevant to um, other healthcare providers. So they, they noticed more awareness of what was happening in the session with their patients, more sensitivity to uh, emotional cues, for instance, and when the <coughs> interpersonal relationship with their patient was not going well. They also noticed um, the, that they were bringing more acceptance into the relationship, um, acceptance of their patients and whatever was going on with them, and also accepting of, them, of themselves as a finite being, as a limited healer. Um, they also reported cultivating more intentional compassion for their patients, having less fear of working with their patients, and especially those who had severe mental illness, less fear of failure, less fear of the client's approval, less fear of, um, and that this resulted in them being more humble and willingness to seek help and consultation. And as a supervisor, that was really nice to see. <laughs> um, they also reported having less reactivity in sessions, feeling like they were more present with their patients, um, and um, having strategies for taking care of themselves, particularly after a grueling day. And finally, they began to see that mindfulness was uh, emerging into a way of thinking about their patients, a way of conceptualizing their patients' struggles and suffering, and a uh, way of thinking about perhaps the direction that 
uh, that cure might occur. So for practitioners, um, a, a compelling case can be made that mindfulness is a powerful tool to promote clinical practice as well as self-care. Let me give you an example of how these can come together. Through my own meditation practice, I've come to realize the interdependence of systems traditionally treated as separate. I imagine as doctors that there are a number of patients that are perplexing and that are treatment resistant, just as there are in my practice. We're clearly complex systems. And what I've noticed in my 25 years of practice as a psychologist is that questions always exist about what's the root cause and what's most, the most effective entry point for dealing with illness. Sometimes the root cause is, is psychological. For example, in working with a couple who came to me because of vicious power struggles that would last for days, I noticed throughout the first session that the woman in the marriage, who was a handful of years younger than her husband, remained perched on the edge of the couch through the whole session. I noticed this in the first session, but chose not to respond to it um, because in part she was wearing a miniskirt, and I wasn't sure if that was perhaps the cause of the way she was sitting. And, um, but in the second session, she sat in the same way, and I noticed sort of using my background in mindfulness that it, it was creating a bit of anxiety in my own experience. Um, and um, so this is one way as practitioners that mindfulness can be helpful as we start to sense into what's happening in the relationship and the other person. We can actually start to sense this somatically in our own bodies. So as a practitioner, I, con I continually scan my own body as a way of noticing my own reactions or tra uh, counter-transference and, um, and my own level of stress, and also because it's invariably an indicator of what's going on with the patient and in our relationship. And so um, noticing that her you know, posture made me feel anxious, I decided I to take a risk. And I invited her to try an experiment in mindfulness. So here I'm bringing mindfulness into the work together, not just in terms of understanding my own experience. I guided her quickly into a mindful state um, in just with a moment or two instruction, something like, um, I wonder if you could just take a moment and just notice your breath and just notice what it's like to be breathing in this moment. And then I said to her, uh, and I wanna make a suggestion to you, which you don't have to do, but if you're okay with it and wanna try it, um, I'm going to ask you to do something, and then I wanted you to notice what your immediate reaction is. And it might be a physical sensation that comes up, it might be an emotion, it might be a thought, um, might be an image or memory. And so I asked her, from this place of slowing down and settling, <coughs> to sit back in the couch. She does, and immediately breaks down and starts crying. As we unpacked what had happened, she realized that she was always vigilant, literally on edge. And she realized this was an adaptation that she learned as a way of coping with her parents at an early age, who were very intellectualized academics and expected her to be able to justify and rationalize all of her decisions and choices. And she literally felt in this process of having to be able to field all of their questions that no one had her back. And she was all alone in the world. <clears throat> Hence, the fierce need that came out, unfortunately destructively in her marriage, to defend herself. And it turns out she'd already developed disabling chronic uh, pain in her back and had significant GI issues. As we continued our course of therapy, she increasingly came to take comfort in the support of the couch, and more importantly, in the support of her husband and in the support of uh, the therapy and our relationship. And her back and GI distress over the course of treatment lessened significantly. One of the easiest and most powerful ways to begin to incorporate mindfulness into your life personally and professionally is to begin to pay attention to your breath. This is for two reasons. First, our breathing reveals the state of our autonomic nervous system. When we're in a sympathetic nervous system state, our breathing becomes shallow and irregular and erratic. 
So if we make a point regularly of noticing the quality of our breathing, we can have a built-in indicator of when we are becoming stressed or reactive. Second, the breath is one of the easiest ways to activate our parasympathetic nervous system and re-regulate our autonomic nervous system. When we slow our breath down and make it smoother and deeper, it works with the vagal nerve to, print, to activate our parasympathetic nervous system. This is one of the principles um, uh, of why yoga, when done mindfully, can be so effective. We place ourselves in a difficult situation or pose, which would normally activate the sympathetic nervous system, and then bring a calm, deep breath to it, which brings the parasympathetic nervous system back online. In this way, we find calmness in the midst of stress, equanimity in the midst of challenges. Um, sorry, and it looks like we're about out of time. So um, one very powerful example I just wanted to share that um, I had of a patient with stage four ovarian cancer who took an MBSR course with me. Um, at the end of the course, as we were processing the experience, she said she took the course because she thought that it might um, teach her, um, she might learn something about how to die. And, but she said that as she's walking away from the course that what she learned instead was actually how to live. Since coming, since coming to Dartmouth, I've had the great honor of working with Susie Stevens, a psychologist at Hanover Psychiatry, to offer an MBSR course to the Department of Anesthesiology. And thanks to the, um, uh, thanks to the leadership of Tom Dodds, we hope other departments will follow suit. And we've also been exploring the creation of a program or center for contemplative medicine at Dartmouth, something that can coordinate providing mindfulness training to students, practitioners, and staff and the larger community, including Dartmouth College. Please um, contact me if you're interested in being a part of a brainstorming session around this, or if I can answer any questions or consult with you. Thank you for your time. Uh, I realize the time is late. We'll take one or two questions if they're there, and uh, then come up here to see John afterwards. Yes. Could you say something about how mindfulness could be useful with PTSD? Um, sure. Um, well, uh, one needs to be quite careful. Um, one of the uh, counter indicators can be for people with severe trauma or psychosis. So, um, uh, but actually one of the interesting things coming out of Richie Davidson's lab is that they're using yogic breathing, pranayama, with people with severe PTSD who really literally can't sit still with themselves. Over um, a seven week period, three hours a day in the morning, to help them regulate their uh, autonomic nervous system enough to be able to then enter into mindfulness more fully. Um, but it's, uh, Largely a process of exposure, increasing exposure to the trauma and such that it, it doesn't overwhelm the, um, the nervous system. Yeah, thank you for asking. Okay, well, I think we'll remain up here for a little bit. And uh, keep in mind that we have an opportunity in the station, actually, to our session. You're very welcome.